Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Defense Now, the show for those who care to be aware about the defense and foreign policy issues facing our country on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Connor Bolanos, joined in the studio by my lovely producer, Kendall Doerr, and today we're going to be talking about something that you've probably heard of in the past week or so if you've been paying attention to defense news, and that would be the Heritage Foundation's Index of Military Strength. For the first time in its history, the Index of Military Strength has rated the U.S. military overall as weak, something that, according to an anonymous defense official in the Pentagon, who was in a polit- saying in a political article, that Pentagon leaders were, quote, none too pleased, end quote, that the Heritage Foundation's latest index of military strength characterized American hard power as weak. The unnamed source also had said that the scoring was, quote, silly and dangerous based on the outdated requirement that the military might be able to fight two wars simultaneously, end quote. Given that the Index of Military Strength is really the only one of its kind, no other research institution really goes in its depth into the U.S. military other than the U.S. military itself, so it's really one of the biggest outside looks at the U.S. military. And given the controversy that it seemingly caused in the Pentagon, in addition to perhaps criticism from others within the military leadership and establishment, I think it's worth discussing the Index of Military Strength, evaluating whether the parameters and its framework is valid, and ultimately then going through why it assesses the U.S. military is weak, and whether or not those assessments are fair. So let's start with the most fundamental question here of the Index of the Military Strength. Whether or not the notion that the U.S. military needs to be able to fight two wars simultaneously is outdated. If we go back to World War II, this is mainly the source of the framework for that notion. The United States found itself fighting in Europe and in Asia, and it was also expected that if the Cold War were to ever grow hot, you would see the same conflicts emerge. After all, China was a communist nation, and the Soviet Union also had military assets in Asia. And we had our obligations to our NATO allies in Europe, and so it was expected that there would be a two- front war, you could say, two major regional conflicts that the U.S. would have to find itself ingrained in. This was the requirement and the framework for a lot of military planning up until the Obama administration, when they changed that requirement to only being a single regional major conflict. I think that the Heritage Foundation's assessment to use two major wars is valid and both useful. I think it's valid insofar that if we look at who the enemies of the United States are, it's Russia, China, North Korea and Iran. These are the four primary states that are the most antagonistic to the United States and the nations most likely to be found in conflict with the United States if an actual war to ever occur. And this is not including, of course, other nations such as Afghanistan, Syria, or whatever proxy war the U.S. may find itself involved in, or whatever terrorist groups the U.S. may find itself committing f- forces against. And while one could argue that we wouldn't really ever fight these nations at the same time, I feel that it's useful to use this framework in order to be better prepared than less underprepared. It is possible that China were to join in a war between the United States and Russia in maybe not even directly, but they could potentially invade Taiwan during that scenario, in which case the U.S., if it would stick to its obligations and so far kind of what it's hinted at as it would do, then it would need to deploy military assets to the region. So the U.S., even if it only finds itself in one major power war, needs to be able to at least deter another war, and that would require the U.S. to be capable of fighting two major regional conflicts. And so given these factors and the fact that 
I think the using the two major conflicts is useful and also a very valid framework to go in. I think it's wrong to criticize the index of military strength for approaching the problem within that framework. With that said, let's jump into what the Heritage Foundation, though, has to say regarding these threats, uh, Russia, Iran, China, North Korea, and non-state actors in their own index of military strength. In the index of military strength, they have a section assessing these threats. And overall, they rate all of these nations, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, non-state actors, as having a high threat level to U.S. vital interests. Of course, having a high threat to U.S. vital interests, though, doesn't necessarily mean a high capability to threaten U.S. national interests. And looking at their table of the capability of the threat, China and Russia are rated as formidable, Iran and North Korea as gathering, and non-state actors as capable. So while there are certainly some at elements of these threats that aren't as perhaps threatening as you think they may be, like non-state actors, the two most prominent, China and Russia, who I'm sure you've heard of and already know of, are the largest threats to U.S. national interest, are rated, at least according to the Heritage Foundation, as truly being credible threats to U.S. national interests. Interestingly, the Index of Military Strength also takes effort to assess the behavior of these threats. And all of the nations, with the exception of North Korea, were rated as being aggressive in their threats. And I think that this is a statement that is certainly true if we just look at what's happening around the world right now. It's predicted that China is likely going to aim to conquer Taiwan by 2027. We've seen Russia in the Ukraine. We've seen Iran dealing and kind of pushing back a little bit on the Iranian nuclear deal. And North Korea receives a rating of testing as North Korea, well, you can tell, hasn't really made the news lately. They're not threatening to invade anyone. They're doing what they normally do, which is usually nuclear and ballistic missile tests. But compared to these other nations and non-state actors, their actions are not as aggressive. For those of you just tuning in, welcome back to Defense Now on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We just got done talking about the framework on which the Heritage Foundation's Index of Military Strength is made. That framework being that the U.S. military should be prepared to fight two simultaneous major conflicts. And we discussed how why, despite perhaps assertions that this is a flawed framework, that it's actually a framework that's not only valid, but useful for assessing the U.S. military and for ensuring the security of the United States. But with that, of course, let's get into the bread and butter of what the Index of Military Strength is and actually go through what the strength is of the various branches of the military, and we'll start with the U.S. Army. The Index of Military Strength overall rates the U.S. military power for the Army as being marginal. Its capacity is rated as weak, its capability as marginal, but its readiness at very strong. Now, let's walk through each of those real quickly as to why they have these assessments. The reason for the capacity assessment being weak is that the U.S., based on the sort of historical how many divisions they had to send to each theater in order to properly fight a war there, the U.S. military army is really understaffed to fulfill that role. It doesn't have the divisions it's needed. And you've probably heard before that the Army's been facing a lot of recruiting challenges. There's, an, there's less than maybe or roughly around 20% of U.S. young adults are actually fit to serve in the U.S. military if there was actually to be a draft. And the Army's faced a large shortfall in recruitment over these previous years that's led to the understaffing of these divisions, which justifies this weak capacity score. The capability score of marginal is, while perhaps sounding not great, is the center score, you could say. 
There's very weak, weak, marginal, strong, and very strong. So in regards to capability, the army isn't as bad as perhaps the word marginal sounds. But it is still, to an extent, a concerning number. When you're discussing fighting a war, you know, it's ultimately the army that has the whole territory, right? Blockades don't necessarily win wars strategic air power doesn't necessarily win wars if we look to history war has really ever been won because the land power was able to occupy the enemy territory and force an unconditional surrender we saw that with japan in world war ii we saw it with germany in world war ii and so you know capability is important and the reason largely for the rating of capability as marginal is in part that the army is modernizing a lot of its existing vehicles. It has a new armored fighting vehicle coming out that's rolling out. But at the same time, a lot of these programs are underfunded. They're slow in requisition. And so while the army is modernizing, it's not necessarily modernizing enough to make it a very strong or a strong rating. But of course, though, then you have readiness, which is rated very strong by the Index of Military Strength. And the reason for this is that the Army reports that 81% of its 31 regular Army BCTs are at the highest state of readiness. And this is in contrast to its internal requirement for 66% of the BCTs to be at the highest readiness levels. So considering that the Army's roughly 20-15% above that readiness level, it earns the assessment of strong. But overall, the Army is ranked as being marginal. It's committed to modernizing, but many programs are still underfunded or in its development phase. The Army is aging faster than it's modernizing. The Army, at least according to the Heritage Foundation, has 62% of the force it should have, but has significantly increased the force's readiness. But the Army is also pushing down operational training to the company level below battalion and brigade, and it's unclear how ready these brigades then, given these changes in training, actually are or how effective they would be in combat against a peer competitor. And now let's move on to the Index of Military Strength's assessment of the U.S. Navy, which it overall ranks as being weak. In their assessment of the military power of the Navy, the Index of Military Strength rates the capacity of the U.S. Navy to be very weak, its capability marginal, and its readiness weak. In order to fulfill this role of fighting two simultaneous wars, the Index assesses that the U.S. needs a battle force consisting of 400 manned warships. If you recall our, first our last and first episode of Defense Now where we talked about the U.S. Navy, the Navy's current battle force is only 298, and they're looking to decommission more ships and shrink that number to 280 by 2037. The capability score, marginal trending towards weak, is largely due to the result that many of these naval ships are old and they're really not modernized, in contrast to the ships of our peer competitors. The Chinese, for example, while their aircrafts are maybe their aircraft carriers are not as abundant as ours numerically and maybe even not superior in quality, you could say, they are still, many of them, older vessels, in contrast to the Chinese carriers, which have only been built in the last decade. In contrast, a lot of U.S. naval vessels have gone through what are called service life extension programs, where they're refitted in order to last beyond what they were originally built to serve for. Of course, the result of this, though, is that the ships are usually not outfitted with the most modern technology, or they're not equipped to handle the technology that they're being retrofitted with, ultimately reducing the quality and capability of those vessels. And, it's, and the U.S. can't really replace those vessels or build them, and it's, it's not as simple as that. As we've discussed in our last episode, U.S. shipyards are not, pr are not modern enough to really handle an increased load in build orders. 
there's a shortage in engineers and mechanics and the people who actually make these ships. And so fixing the U.S. Navy is no small task. And so you've had this kind of trend of aging ships and a declining U.S. Navy in recent years. Hence the rating and capability of being marginal, trending towards weak. And then the Index of Military Strength rates the readiness score of the U.S. Navy as being weak, largely due to this issue of shipyards and needing to not being able to recapitalize antiquated and inadequate infrastructure across the board in regards to maintenance or the workforce needed in order to maintain it. The effectiveness of training and exercises measured against China is also the reason for this, as China's been really stepping up its game in recent years, while the U.S. Navy has, of course, been facing issues with personnel shortages and, of course, then rebalancing training in light of the ship classes it's fielding, the aging fleet, and all those other factors. For those of you just tuning in, welcome to Defense Now. We just got done talking about the Heritage Foundation's Index of Military Strength Assessment of the power of the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy within its framework of being able to fight two simultaneous major conflicts in two different regions. The index rated the Army as marginal and the Navy as weak, and we're about to jump into the Air Force, which gets the lowest score within its Index of Military Strength at being very weak. Looking at the breakdown of their assessment of the military power of the Air Force, the Index of Military Strength gives the capacity of the Air Force a marginal rating, its capability a marginal rating, but its readiness a very weak level. Looking to its rate, capacity rating of marginal, we need to look at some of the troubles that the Air Force has been facing in recent years. One of it being, as we've seen already across the Navy and across the Army, has been a personnel shortage. There really has been a shortage of pilots in the U.S. Air Force, and that's something that they really haven't been able to overcome in the past few years, and something that is continuing to trend downwards. The other big issue is similar to the Navy's, one of procurement and acquisition. The Air Force is retiring aircraft faster than it is replacing them. And if you've looked at the National Defense Authorization Act for 2022-2023, you'll notice that, for example, the procurement of F-35s, which is, you know, the Air Force's kind of new staple jet, has been on a large decline. We are only procuring, I think, 48 of them this year, when in contrast to five years ago, we were procuring over 120. And one of the reasons for this is not because necessary we're being cheap or because we can't make enough of them. We can do both of those things. It's more so because there's currently two types of F-35s. There's like a Block 1 F-35 and a Block 2 F-35. They have different equipment in them, you could say, different software upgrades, and they believe that there's going to be a Block 3, and so they kind of want to wait for Block 3 to roll out instead of procuring more Block 2s in order to, you know, reduce the cost of having to retrofit those Block 2s to Block 3s, which makes a lot of sense from a financial cost standpoint. The issue, however, becomes when your peer competitor, for example, China, is procuring between 100 and 200 aircraft a year, and your air forces are overall facing a significant decline. And during an age where Russia is invading Ukraine and, and China may be wanting to invade Taiwan by 2027, the question is, do you have time to wait for those Block 3 retrofits to happen before starting procurement again, or do you need those aircraft right now? And I think, I think the index rightly asserts that we kind of need those aircraft right now, especially to act as a sort of deterrence for conflict. Overall, in regards to its capability score, the index rates it as marginal. And breaking down the capability score, they rate the size of the modernization programs for the Air Force as strong, the age of the equipment as marginal, 
and the health of the program is marginal, but weak for the capability of the equipment. For example, one of the you know the reasons for this weak in capability of equipment is the KC-46 Pegasus. This was meant to be the new big aerial refueling tanker that had like a digital dongle which would uh, you, it was a camera, basically, that allowed the operator to guide the refueling tube down to the aircraft instead of the old way in which the you know there would be no visual aid and the tube craft would have to try and get that to line up. It was a lot more difficult. The issue, however, was that the visual guide didn't end up working. And so it was this major mess or whatnot. And so basically the KC-46, despite all the money that went into it, pretty much ended up functioning like one of the old tankers. And so you, and this is an issue across a number of the aircraft, right? Where these aircraft are super high tech and, but also super prone then to, you know, engineering failure. And when they, you know, have an engineering failure, it takes forever to fix them. But they have great modernization programs. Nearly every type of aircraft has a new aircraft of its type in development to replace it. They're already working on the replacement, the F-35, for example, and those aren't even a decade old yet. So the index is right to, I think, assess these various breakdowns within the capability score, but overall rated as marginal, especially as our aircraft get older. And so a lot of what we can currently fly is perhaps not the most up-to-date and modern systems that we can field. And lastly, the worst score of all, the readiness score, with the index ranks at very weak. The reason for this is mainly in regards to the flight hours and sorties that aircraft pilots are receiving in training. Training is, and flight hours, is probably the mo one of the most important aspects of being a pilot. If you've seen, you know, the popular movie, everyone uses it, Top Gun Maverick, right? They talk about it's the pilot and the importance of the pilot behind the controls of the aircraft. And there's something certainly true to that. What makes an ace is largely their capability, their, their reaction times, and their ability to operate under pressure. And so training is really one of the most important parts of the aircraft, arguably even more so than the capability of the aircraft itself. To give some numbers behind the training and why this readiness is, score is very weak, fighter pilots during the Cold War averaged roughly 300 hours of flying each year. Today, Air Force pilots average fewer than 120 hours, roughly a single flight each week. We've more than halved the flight time of pilots since the Cold War. However, I do think, and one thing I'll disagree with, is this rating a very weak. I think there's no doubt that pilot flight hours have been on a decline and that the importance of flight hours is something we can't underestimate. But I do think that if you look relative to other nations, for example, Russia averages 100 flight hours per week for its own pilots. It's not as if we're significantly under them. And if we were back at 300, some could argue that's an unnecessary expense. Why do we need to be you know, flying at three times the rate the Russians are? The Chinese are probably around similar numbers to ours. That's not to say, though, that I would argue that the readiness deserves a rating of strong or even marginal. I just think that it would perhaps be better fitted to be weak relative to these other nations rather than very weak. And so at the end of the day, we're left with, for the three core branches of the U.S., military, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, a ranking of marginal, weak, and very weak, respectively. And while though some in the Department of Defense may be upset with these categorizations, which, you know, there's nothing wrong to disagree with these assessments ultimately. I think, however, there is an issue in regards to disagreeing with it under the assumption that the framework of fighting two simultaneous wars is flawed. 
The U.S. has always been a nation that's held interests in different regions of the world and these to Europe and Asia specifically. And it's always been the case, well, at least since the Cold War, that these two regions have had major peer competitor powers for the U.S. And so I don't think it is at all out of bounds to make a safe framework for U.S. national security to be the ability to fight two major simultaneous wars at the same time. And while I do have some disagreements on some minor minutiae and details of the Index of Military Strengths Assessments, I think overall they're largely accurate. And I think when we're approaching issues of the U.S. military in the future, some of the key f- issues we're seeing here are in regards to the modernization and acquisition programs, a topic that's worthy of its own episode that perhaps we'll discuss next time. But the numbers are certainly something, I think, ultimately, to be concerned about, and that it's something that we need to assess when approaching matters of national security and foreign policy. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Defense Now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Join us next time as we discuss another key national security issue facing our country.